All right. Mark chapter 2, um, probably fairly familiar events here. Um, but my prayer is that we would just stand in awe of the grace of Jesus. That we wouldn't let the familiarity of songs or of words or of coming together or of this text not touch us in our hearts. But that we would just stand in complete awe at grace. Like I think you either see grace as something that is amazing and all-inspiring or something as scandalous. And one group in this text, they see it as something scandalous. But there's this other group that just, they love it. And I pray that's true for us. All right, Mark chapter 2. We'll start in verse number 13. The he here is Jesus. So Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you. You could be seated and let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. We just sang so beautifully of the gospel. Hallelujah. What a savior. And may we just give all of our lives to proclaim what a savior. And as we see today in this text of who we are and who Jesus is, may we fall more deeply in love with him because of his grace. And may we receive his healing touch even today. In his name we pray, amen. Um, we've been in a, in a section um, in the book of Mark. And if we could kind of like put a, a one word that kind of covers the theme um, from Jesus's perspective, it would be the, the theme of authority. Like Jesus is the one who is the king and as a king, he has authority. And so what we've been seeing in each little section is we've seen like Jesus's authority on display. And so we've seen all of this. And, and now what we've gotten into is we kind of gotten into the, the flip side of authority. Like there's two sides of authority, right? There's authority, the one who has authority, and then there's usually a reaction to authority. Like you've experienced that when you've looked in the rear view mirror and you've seen the blue lights. You know, you have a reaction to the authority that's about to impose the law on you. And so now we're in this section here where we see like kind of the, the reaction of the people to Jesus's authority. In fact, this section of Mark that we're in now is usually called the, the controversy narratives. Like Jesus's authority is going to stir up some controversy. And so actually for the next couple of weeks, we'll be unfolding that. So we could call it the controversy narratives, or we could call it this, like Jesus pokes the bear. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing in this section is Jesus is, is kind of poking the bear. And who the bear is in the text is the bear would be kind of the religious institution of the day. 
like the, the religious you know, uh, people of the day. It's kind of the people that you and I, we, we generally don't really like until we realize like it's probably us, right? Like, like there's this thing about when Jesus comes where we see Jesus in the gospels and, and Jesus is kind of like sticking it to the man, right? And again, the man is the, the religious institution and the scribes and the Pharisees. And you see Jesus like, like a lot, right? Sticking it to them. And a lot of us, we kind of, we celebrate that about Jesus, until we realize like, hey, we're actually the man that he's sticking it to. That what religion is and what we see in the scribes and the Pharisees is really just pride. It's, it's a different form of pride. It's the form of, of religious self-righteous. But all of us in this room, we're faced with pride and we're faced with self-righteousness. And what pride does is pride puffs up like a, like a balloon, right? Shh, shh, shh. And what Jesus does in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and even now by the power of his spirit and the proclamation of his word is Jesus shows up with a needle and just goes through and starts popping balloons and popping our pride. And so would you come today as we see this text and allow your pride to be popped? I mean, first of all, you gotta be honest with yourself to say like, hey, I struggle with pride, right? I struggle with, with self on some way and it's probably some area of self-righteousness and we'll look at that at the end when we get into the application point. But don't just see yourself as like, hey, this is the scribes and this is the, the churchgoers and this is the religious hypocrites. Yes, this is that in this text. And this text is also for every human being, everyone born after Adam. And so let's get cranking into this text. Verse number 13, we see that Jesus is, is going out and he's beside the sea. And this is, would be the Sea of Galilee that Jesus has been in the, the little town of Capernaum that's on kind of the, the side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so Jesus has been there doing ministry and now he's kind of going out and maybe he's walking on the, on the shore. He's beside the sea and notice there's this crowd. We've, we've seen that, that's the interested, that's the curious, they keep pressing in. Jesus is very, very popular at this time. And so everywhere he goes, there's a crowd around him. He's He's almost as popular as Taylor Swift, and, but they're not hiding him in popcorn machines. Jesus is walking and he's taking that opportunity as the crowd comes around to do this, what Jesus came to do, which is to teach. And so he's teaching them. What is he teaching them? Well, the, the mandates of the kingdom of God. He's continuing his sermon. It's the same sermon that Jesus preaches, which is the kingdom of God is at hand. And how do we respond to the kingdom of God? Well, you repent and you believe the good news. You believe the good news that he's come for you and he's come to save you. And so what's happening in verse 13 is kind of groundhog day of where we've been in Mark. Just another day, another day of teaching, another day around Capernaum, another day of people pressing in around Jesus. But then notice in verse 14, as Jesus passed by, and so he's on this, maybe he's probably on this road. And as he's passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he says to Levi, two simple words, follow me. And Levi says, rose, and he followed him. And so Levi, son of Alphaeus, is um, another name for Matthew, the writer of the gospel account of Matthew. And so it would have been common at this time for people to have kind of multiple names, and maybe you kind of have multiple names. I, I think about my, my dad, and people will know him from different eras as to what they call him. There's, as a young boy, he was known as Butch, and now he's Richard, and then he was, you know, M Mr. Lawrence, and I call him dad. And so there's multitudes of names, and we see this um, as well throughout the Bible. 
You've got Simon, who'll be known as Cephas, who'll be later be known as Peter. So you've got the same thing here happening with Levi. Levi, and then he'll be Matthew. Um, for the rest of the time, he'll be known as Matthew. And you can even kind of understand as you think about Levi as the tax collector, and now Matthew as the follower of Christ, he's probably, probably putting some distance um, between him and what he used to do. We see here that um, he's a tax collector. Um, as you could probably guess it, um, Collecting taxes isn't as popular as Jesus, right? It's probably not a, a popular pastime. It's true for some of you in the room, uh, no show of hands, but some of you have worked at Department of Revenue in the past and you've had to make those calls and ask people for money. Anna, do you wanna go back? No, terrible job, right? Tabby's had that job. Maybe some of you had those jobs, like calling up people and be like, hey, I'm with the state department and you really owe us more money, right? You never get to call them and say, hey, we're gonna give you more money, but you gotta call and say, let me talk to you about this back taxes. And so the same thing is true here. No one likes to pay taxes, right? We're not gonna show a hands, but no one in this room likes to pay taxes. My 19-year-old my son, Grayson, uh, we've been helping him fill out his uh, income tax return which is, you know, again, you made income and now the government's gonna take that income. And so he's surprised, you know, when he receives those numbers. He just recently purchased a truck and he had to go down and pay taxes on that truck. And so we're having these conversations about taxation in my house. And what I say to Grayson is, at least the government spends your money wisely, buddy. <laughs> and Grayson says to me, dad, taxation is theft. And I say, Maybe, just maybe you're right on that one, buddy. I don't know. But nothing has, nothing has changed over 2,000 years. I mean, if you thought taxation is theft now, you should have seen it back in this day. That there were three kinds of taxes that would have been imposed to the Jewish people by the Romans. Again, this isn't by the, the Jews. They would have had another set of, of taxes called the temple tax, but we're just talking about the ones imposed by the Romans. And so there would have been a land tax for all landowners, and that would have been a flat tax that, Oh, landowners would have paid. It would have looked like a 10%. So also you got 10% in your tithe that would be given. Then on top of that, there's another tax that the Roman government is gonna take of 10% of whatever it was that you harvested or your livestock. And like I said, that would have been a flat tax that either those goods or would have been liquidated or would have been sent to Rome. Second, there was a poll tax P-O-L-L, -L, which is also called a, a head tax. And that's just upon every head of household. That's where the census comes in to be able to find out how many people we got to see how much money we can calculate from the people. And so that would have been a lesser tax, but that would have been a small percentage. About a, about a day's wage would have gone up and that would have been paid periodically. But then the third tax was called the customs tax. And that's a tax on goods. And collecting these taxes, um, it actually would have come through the tax collectors. Like the other taxes would have been paid to kind of Jewish officials called publicans. They show up in the New Testament as well. But then the tax collectors, what they're after is they're after this customs tax. And tax collectors would set up these little tax booths along trade routes, entry points in and out of different towns and regions, kind of like a toll. Remember, like, you know, we still see that some, but think about a few years back whenever you drive down certain rolls, toll roads, and there would be toll booths, and you would cross those as you cross over into different states. And the same thing is happening here. 
that Capernaum is a kind of a border town. It's in Galilee, but it borders very close to Decapolis. And so as people are leaving out of Galilee, heading into Decapolis, they're gonna come to a, a toll booth. Maybe there's one on this side and there's one on that side, probably the way that it is. There would have been a toll booth there where these people would have taken up some, uh, some tax on the goods that you had. And so if you were a fisherman in Capernaum and you caught a bunch of fish on your way to Decapolis to sell your fish, guess what? You had to come face to face with a guy like Matthew. And these taxes, unlike the land tax and unlike the poll tax that were very flat rate taxes, these were more arbitrary taxes. And it, with the other taxes, the, it, was, it was elected officials kind of that would handle these. But here this would have been Jewish citizens would have been the, the tax collectors. They wouldn't have become tax collectors because of the uh, rigorous training and tax laws, but rather they would have become tax collectors through contracting. Like what they would have done is they would have placed bids. And so maybe you as an individual, or maybe you'd create like a, an investment firm, you'd get some other friends and you'd say, hey, let's place a bid for this area and we'll go to Rome and we'll say, hey, this is how much money we think we can collect here. And then the highest bid of taxes would be get the contract. And then they would pay all of that money up front. And then what they would have to do is for the rest of this period of time, they would go through and they would collect taxes and then they would get to keep whatever they collected. And so you, you could see how it could be um, very, very crooked and also very lucrative. Tax collectors were extortioners. They were corrupt. I mean, you got to think about this. They're not even collecting for their own people in their own land for their benefit. They're collecting for an invading tyrannical empire, Rome. So they were seen as traitors. They, tra they were traitors to their, to their country and to their people, informants of Rome. They were considered ceremonially, by the, by the law, they're, they are considered ceremonially unclean, which again is a motif for Mark where he, where he is. It's this idea that Jesus has come for the unclean. Remember, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and there's an unclean spirit. And then Jesus touches a man who is unclean, a leper. And now what Jesus is doing is he's calling an unclean tax collector to follow him. So there's this idea they are unclean. They were thieves, they were swindlers, they were extortioners, they had authority, they had power, they had no accountability. They had the power to determine what things are worth. They knew the complex tax laws. They knew the regulations. They assessed the worth of goods. They could set the rate of taxation. They interpreted the regs. They were immune to any sort of legal actions. And so it's just rife for all sorts of injustice. In fact, both the liberal and the conservative um, um, arms of Judaism in that time, they, they, they rarely agreed upon anything, but this they agreed upon. They agreed that it was permissible to lie to a tax collector without any kind of impunity. They were so hated that you get a buy on the ninth commandment to a tax collector. You can bear false witness to a tax collector. They were cheats, they were traitors, they were bullies. You get the picture, right? That's why verse 14 is so remarkable that Jesus chooses Levi to be one of his disciples. Jesus calls Levi just like he called the other four with just two simple words, follow me. And Mark says that Levi, he rose and he followed him. 
And then in verse 15, you've got this, what we call a, a jump cut, or I think what uh, writers, directors call a jump cut in movies. And so there's this, it just goes from one scene to the next scene. And so there's a little bit of, of time elapses here. We're not sure how much, but between 13 or 14 and 15, there's a, a little bit of time that has elapsed. And in verse 15, the scene opens up and Jesus is reclining at a table. Only he's not in his home, rather he's in Levi's home. And he's reclining at table in his house. Now, now he, he's not sitting in a lazy boy recliner, right? So, so men, don't go home today and rearrange your wife's like, furniture and throw off her feng shui by moving the lazy boy in there and you know, setting up a recliner. Be like, hey, I'm just trying to be biblical like Jesus. Like, no, their, their tables weren't like our tables. Their tables were low to the ground. And whenever they reclined, they would be kind of sprawled out, their feet behind them, leaned against the table, leaned against some pillows, and they're eating. And this would have been the posture during a feast. This would have been the posture during a, during a party. This isn't just a Wednesday night supper here. This isn't Taco Tuesday at Levi's house, but what's being pictured here is there's a, there's a party happening. There's all these people around and there's Jesus in the middle of this. Look at what Mark says. There's many tax collectors and sinners. They're all reclining with him. It appears that Jesus is very comfortable in this room. He's reclining there and he's eating and his, his disciples, there's now five of them there there with him and there's many who's followed him. There's the crowd is pressing it. So it's this huge area that birds of a feather, we say, they flock together and Levi's got a lot of friends and guess what kind of friends Levi's got? Tax collecting friends and sinning friends. And so what Levi does is Levi's eager for them to meet Jesus and for Jesus to meet them. And the best way Levi can think to do it is I'm gonna throw a party. And that's exactly what he does. Presumably Jesus is the guest of honor and all of the participants there, there they fall into this category, Mark says. They're, they're tax collectors, sinners, disciples, or part of the crowd. Now, tax collectors are considered sinners, but not all sinners are tax collectors. And that makes sense. But as I was studying this, I thought it was interesting to say, well, what fits the category of sinner? Like what is in that category of sinner? Maybe you put certain things in there in the Mishnah, which is kind of a written of the Jewish oral tradition. The Mishnah describes um, sinners as this. It says sinners are gamblers. Oh, they're gamblers and money lenders. People who race doves for sport. I mean, evidently that was a thing, right? And people who trade on the Sabbath year, they're thieves, the violent shepherds, and of course, tax collectors. And Jesus seems very comfortable around this crowd. But notice who isn't comfortable, not just in that crowd, but they're not comfortable with Jesus being in that crowd is the scribes. So notice in verse number 16, we have the scribes of the Pharisees. Now that's a scribe on a next level. They're the, the, the Pharisees are really the kind of the, the guard dogs, the religious law dogs of the Bible. Now they've got their scribes and the scribes of the Pharisees, Mark says, when they saw, so they're on the outside looking in, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, so he's asking probably those five or maybe a few others, he's saying, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who, are, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And in this last text of scripture, and as we apply that to our own hearts and our own lives, I want us to, to see three things. There's, there's three areas that this text really challenges us. It challenges us in how we see um, three things. Number one, ourselves. Number two, others. And number three, Jesus. But I'm just gonna kind of mix all those up as I walk through this text. As I follow through in this application piece, I'm just gonna kind of mix those up. So it's not gonna be one, two, and three, but first we see we, um, the text challenges us and how we see ourselves. The theme of this text from the perspective of the scribes would have been this, they are triggered by grace. They are triggered by grace. That's, what hap- that's what's happening here. Jesus' choosing, Jesus' calling, Jesus' including of Levi, it is a demonstration of, of God's grace. As we said, Jesus has all authority and then what is he going to do with that authority? And what we do with authority, oftentimes it shows our true heart and it shows our character. And so what does Jesus do with the authority? Well, notice Jesus authoritatively calls Levi. I mean, it's, 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 he's calling Levi to follow him. He's calling Levi as a disciple. He's calling Levi out of his past as a tax collector and to come and to follow him with almost an irresistible call here. And then what will you do following that? Well, as if calling Levi isn't enough, then Jesus is gonna go to this party. He's gonna sit in this banquet. And so this is extravagant grace. It's extravagant grace in the life of Levi. It's extravagant grace to these tax collectors and these sinners that Jesus would be, um, would be in their midst. Now, grace is a, is, is a church word and we use it, right? And sometimes I think we know what we mean by it. And sometimes I think like, well, what is it? And we try to define it and we stumble at trying to define it. We just sang about it, but can we really define it? So grace is simply this. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved favor. John Piper says it like this, grace is a quality in God. So in the heart of God, in the the mind of God, in the being, the nature, the character of God, there is this quality in him, grace, that produces free gifts. So free gifts like salvation and invitation and forgiveness of sin. To whom? To guilty sinners. Grace is a quality in God that produces free gifts for guilty sinners. You can't earn grace. That's why it's undeserved. It's completely free. It's unmerited. And here's the reality. Grace triggers the natural man. Like we understand that language, like when you say you're triggered, right? It upsets It's unsettling. The natural man, what I mean by the natural man versus the spiritual man, the man who has been born again, he understands grace and gets grace, but the natural man, uh, the the man who's who's yet to be born again, the man who's still in his flesh and still in the world, grace can, can trigger that man. The natural man can see grace, God's display as grace, as something very surprising and unsettling. And as I said before, it it could be even scandalous if we could. That what's happening here in the life of Levi, what's happening is is an illustration of a parable that Jesus will talk about in order to demonstrate his grace. It's not surprising that Matthew will, uh, Levi, Matthew will include it in his gospel account. In Matthew chapter 20, 
Matthew will recount this telling, this parable that Jesus gives. This So again, a parable is a truth of the kingdom put in story form so that we can understand it, right? So we can put it, but it's, like, it's an illustration. And Jesus will illustrate his grace by telling this parable. And it's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So this, this owner who owns, a, who owns a vineyard, he owns you know, land, he owns all these things. And he goes out early in the morning to hire, to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he goes to his laborers and he agrees to pay them one denaria a day. One denaria, so one dollar a day, let's just say. And then he sends them into his vineyard. And they go to work. And then about mid-morning, so say like nine o'clock, he goes down to the market and he sees all of these people just kind of standing around and they're idle. And so then the master says to them, hey, would you like to work? I'll pay you. And they say, yes, we would like to work, you know, take us to work. And he says, okay. And so he loads them up and he releases them into his vineyard and they go to work. And then about lunchtime, Jesus says in this story, then about midday, he goes back down to the marketplace and there's more people down there. And he says to them, hey, does anybody wanna come work? I, I will pay you if you'll come to work. And they say, sure, we'll go to work for you. And so he loads up. I mean, this reminds me back in the day we used to cut tobacco. They used to go down to the school. They'd gather up workers, farmhands to come work. And so Jesus is doing a similar thing. He's like, come in this story. Anyway, he said, the, the master's doing a similar thing, come and work. And so at noon, they come and they work. And then he does it again at three o'clock. And then he does it again at five o'clock when there's barely any sunlight left. He goes back down into the marketplace. He calls more people, he releases them. And then when the day is through, he hands them all $1. They all get one denaria. They all get the same. And in the story, Jesus says that the workers who had worked all day, they were incensed. They were, they were triggered. They were angry. They say, these last workers, they've only worked one hour and you've made them equal to us. We have bore the burden, they say, of the day and the scorching heat. But Jesus replies to them in the story. He replies to them. He says, friend, I'm not doing you any wrong. Did you not agree with me for, to work for one denarius? So take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to... I choose to give to this last worker as I'm giving to you. I'm not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me. Or do you begrudge my generosity, he says. So the last will be first and the first will be last. And see, they aren't angry that they received a denarii. What they're angry about is the fact that those last workers received a denarii. It's not like they, they wanted more for what they did, but they didn't want them to get the same thing that they got at the end of the day. And that is the shocking reality of grace. And Jesus is telling that story and he's doing this here to press that shocking reality upon all of us because the reality is this, that you usually won't be amazed by God's grace for yourself, truly and genuinely, until you've been shocked by his grace for others. Let me say that again. You usually won't be amazed by God's grace for yourself, truly and genuinely amazed by it. You may sing the song, but you haven't really genuinely be amazed by it until you've been shocked by the scandal of his grace in others. 
I mean, even if we think through this and we can use a little bit of our imagination, it isn't in the narrative, but can you imagine what Simon and Andrew and James and John thought about Jesus, including Levi? Again, remember what Levi, he was, he was imposing taxes on goods being traveling to and from two different places, goods like fish. And Simon and Andrew and James and John, what are they? They're fishermen. Capernaum is about a thousand people, maybe a little bit bigger. So there's probably little doubt that they probably would have been familiar with Levi. They probably would have been shook down, if you will, by Levi. And can you imagine how they felt? Can you imagine how they felt when Jesus called Levi, when Jesus showed his grace? See, when you see Jesus' salvation, and when you see his forgiveness, and when you see his restoration being extended to people that you don't think deserve it, it will either drive you to think little about Jesus and his grace or little about yourself. One of the two will happen. You'll say, who am I to decide that Jesus can, uh, and who Jesus can save? And if they needed his grace and their gra- his grace has saved them, then what does that say about me? It says the same thing about me. I too needed his grace. And that's when Jesus' grace pops the balloon. See, the problem with the religious is, as I said in the beginning, it's self-righteousness. Now, that's kind of the big E on the I chart. We'll move past James and John, and we'll go to the obvious part in the narrative of the scribes um, in in the room or outside of the room. That's kind of the big E on the I chart. We could see that there, right? We could see their self righteousness, but how did they get there? And here's how they got there the scribes saw God's law as a ladder to climb where they achieve righteousness rather than a mirror that reveals God's character and their sinfulness. Now, that's, that's two very different pictures, right? That's two very different images. Like, like, like it would be hard for you and I to, to confuse a ladder for a mirror and vice versa, right? But those are two images that we can really grab a hold of that the, that the law in God's intention, the law was meant to be a ladder. I mean, it was meant to be a mirror and not a ladder. That a ladder where they, they through their apparent, apparent obedience and knowledge and devotion to the law, and their religious performance, they felt closer. See, how, that's how a ladder works. Like if you think of heaven and God being high up as they were through their devotion and through their obedience and through their keeping of the law, they're climbing up this ladder. And so the, high, the more devoted they were, the more obedient they were, the higher and higher up the ladder they got. They thought that's how it worked. That's a, they thought that's how religion worked. And so they felt very high up and from way up there, perched way up there, they could look down upon everyone else. But that's not the way that the law is supposed to work. The law is, a, it's a mirror, right? It's like a two-way glass and on it, it reveals. So what do mirrors do? They, they reveal things and they reflect things. And so it reveals, what is this mirror? What does the law reveal? It reveals God's character to us. But secondarily, it reflects back to us our, our own character. It shows us our, our own ugliness. I mean, have you 
like, just think about this. Again, in their, in their thinking, they're not thinking of the law like that. It's like, it's like going through your life without, without a mirror. I mean, like, have you, have you done that? Have you ever gotten up in the morning and, you know, you, you're getting ready, you're doing stuff, or you, you, you don't stop and look in the mirror, and then you think, oh, you know what, I need to run out, right? They call from the school, and they're like, hey, your kid forgot this lunchbox again, right? You go, okay, I'm going to take it down to the school real quick. So you put on some sweatpants and a sweatshirt, and you rush out the door, and you get down there, and you, you see people, or you go, to, you go to Kroger, or you go to Walmart. If you go to Walmart, it's probably not a big deal. But anyway, you go to these places there, and you forgot to look in the mirror before you leave, and then you get back, and you look, and your hair's all disheveled, right? You look a mess. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe I went out like that. And that's what's happening here. They don't have a law. They're not looking at it as a way to see themselves and to see their own ugliness, right? I mean, and then with a, with a mirror, let's just be honest. Only the Fonz looks at the mirror and goes, hey, you know? The rest of us, we look in a mirror and we're like, yeah. Well, you know, I see myself for who I am. And that's what happens. That's what the, that's what the law was supposed to do. It was supposed to reveal these things to them, but, in, but they didn't look in it as a law. They saw it as a ladder on which they're climbing up and that's self-righteousness right there. That's self-righteousness. I mean, look at the, their ascension and their arrogance and their blindness and their self-deception. I mean, that's what, self, um, that's what self-righteousness is. That's what it does to us. It leads us to be arrogant. It leads us to be blind. It leads us to be self-deceived. And we see that even in the question that they ask. Like, did you, Jesus... Jesus came, like, like, who is this guy that he would eat with sinners and, and tax collectors, right? That's, a, that's the question they ask. And what the arrogance behind that, because what they're saying is they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves in that category, but they're in a, a separate category. That in fact, when Jesus is referencing, when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, Jesus isn't creating a category for those people who don't need him and need his grace, He's not saying that there are sinners who need him and then there are those who don't need him. No, what Jesus is saying here is the only way to receive him and receive his salvation is come in grips to grips with your own ugliness, even if that ugliness is self-righteousness. The only way to, to receive him is through his grace. That's what Jesus is saying. And there are those who get his grace and rejoice in his grace. And then there are those in their pride who are grace resistant. And the self-righteous are grace-resistant. They feel that they can do it on their own. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, open sin kills its thousands of souls, but self-righteousness kills its tens of thousands. He goes on and he says, give up your secret pride. Cast away your vain ideas of your own goodness. Be thankful if you have grace, but never glory in it for a moment. Work for God and Christ with heart and soul and mind and strength, but never dream for a second of placing confidence in any work of your own. And see, what we want to do in our culture, and when I mean the American culture, is sometimes we wanna, we wanna distance ourselves, and rightfully so, from the religious. What we wanna think is somehow that the irreligious have somehow escaped self-righteousness. 
Like what the lost crowd wants to say is, you know, self-righteousness is a problem in religion. Therefore, I'm going to avoid religion and avoid self-righteousness altogether. But listen, the irreligious have not escaped self-righteousness either. They've just flipped the script. They see themselves in their irreligion on the ladder. And all of us who are devoted to Jesus and all of us who are living disciplined, holy lives and all of us who do crazy things like gather each week together, we're at the bottom and they've ascended high. And what Jesus is saying to all of us is, we all need his grace. That this is in this text, this is a demonstration of the shocking reality of grace and our great need for grace. See, Jesus has come to be a physician, as he says here, to sin sick souls that need him. And Jesus is saying, that's all of us. We all need him. That Jesus only eats with sinners. See, in this story, there's only two categories of people. It's not the righteous and sinners. Jesus lumps all of them together. It's not just sinners and tax collectors. They're all sinners. The two categories of people here is sinners and Jesus. And if Jesus eats with anyone, then Jesus is eating with a sinner. And they fail to see that. This is a demonstration of the shocking reality of grace over and over again. That Jesus has come preaching and teaching his message. His message is for us to repent and believe in the good news. And the good news is that Jesus has come to change us, to change us all The good news isn't a new ladder on which we climb to the heights of of righteousness. It's not a new ladder for us to ascend. But the gospel is a mirror where we can come face to face with our own ugliness of our sin. The own ugliness of our self-righteousness. Our own ugliness of us looking down on others. The own righteousness of our, or the own ugliness of all of our ways before him. The good news is the beautiful truth that Jesus has descended. Jesus has come down the ladder. And what has he come to do? He's come to heal and to transform sin-sick souls like Levi and anyone else who would repent. Jesus does not make moral repentance or perfection a precondition to his love. He shows up in extravagant ways. He wants us to see his love and his love and his grace that that will take him all the way to the cross. May we see that love and that, and, be, and that grace and be transformed by it. I said there's a subtle question all throughout the gospel of Mark. We're following Jesus, the servant king, and will you father, follow him? Even today, will you receive his grace? Will you repent from all of your self-salvation projects? Will you magnify his grace in your own heart and your own life? And will you receive him? Peter writes at the end of 2 Peter He writes this, he says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we can grow in grace. And may we as a body, may we grow in grace. May we grow in grace as we come again to this table. Grace upon grace. And may we be so gripped by by Jesus' grace for us that he would save us Extend forgiveness to us. May we see ourselves as as like Levi, hungry for that, the undeserving. 
May we be so gripped by his grace that we invite others to experience the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace as we've already sung that saved a wretch like us. Lord, we magnify your grace. We marinate our hearts in your grace as we remember your grace in the giving and receiving of these elements that represent your life. Father, as we come to this table, may we be moved by your grace anew and afresh. In your name we pray, amen.